1: Thanks for joining us. It's great to have you on. I'm excited to kind of talk about uh, this article. Do y'all want to spend a few minutes to kind of, well, reintroduce yourselves to Lucas and just like kind of give us a background of what Evil Martian does?
2: Yeah, sure. Hi, Lucas. Hi, Justin. It's awesome that you're having us on your podcast. We are very thrilled. So Alexei and I, we are part of Evil Martians. Evil Martians is um, a product development company that basically is a completely remote sort of community of developers. We are about 40 people. We are based all over the world. And we uh, have a bunch of offices in uh, in Russia and in States. We have an office in New York, uh, one office in San Francisco. We're currently moving um, towards uh, American market now. And as a product development company, we basically uh, provide a full range of services for startups, consulting them, uh, leading them through all the stages of their business, helping them to pivot, uh, helping them to find their customer base, uh, helping them to scale, most importantly. So we are not the outsourcing company per se, You know where we work with the ready uh, specs and implement them in code we sort of work with the business to help them find the optimal uh, strategy for uh, going live. And then we follow them. And then once the startup grows, we help to coach developers and best practices, sort of provide all that services. Um, Our clients are probably some of them you know, they are eBay and Groupon, um, more companies. And uh, yeah, I am doing basically communications at Evil Martians. I'm uh, responsible for the blog Martian Chronicles that we publish on our website, where the article that we're going to discuss is located. And Alexey is one of our most talented uh, front-end developers. So just uh, let's let him introduce himself. Alexey. Uh, Hi,
3: Justin. My name is Alexey Ivanov and I'm also working in the Evil Martians. I am team lead at one of our eBay products. And so after our original article, did not start as a blog post. First, it was a conference talk about trapped and Tender, but uh, it was pretty popular, so we decided to
2: write follow-up in the form of an art- article. Awesome. Yeah, awesome. and the article is called, just you know to remind our listeners, it's called uh, Optimizing React Virtual DOM Explained, and it's a very uh, thorough primer on how React internals work, you know, uh, what is JSX, what does it boil down to, and how does React make rendering decisions, and it all is supposed to help people who do React uh, to find bottlenecks and um, basically understand some quick wins to optimize uh, their apps.
3: Uh, the fun thing is that the original conference talk was not about it. It was about working with state and how you should structure your state and how you should connect components to it, etc, etc. But the talk was pretty long and when we started to write an article about it, we understood that nobody will read it. So we decided to split into parts, but here we are half of the year and still only the first part is published.
4: This keep things small works really well. I I like a quote from James Brown. I don't know if it's real or not, but it's attributed to him. He said, when I have one idea, I compose a song. And when I have two ideas, I compose two songs. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it's like if you have, uh, if you try to put like five ideas in one uh, post, maybe the message won't go as far as like distilling one idea at a time, right?
2: Yeah, that is true. I totally agree. Yes, completely.
3: Yes, I totally agree. But if we want to find somebody to blame uh, for what, uh, for why the second article was not published yet, we will blame the rap guys. The <laughs> second part was using Redux as example and to. Uh, Discussed the state management. First, I uh, was describing how Redux work. You see, uh, context API and things like that. But then we released our first article at the end of March, and in April React released the sixteen point two version that replaced context API with the, the API with the new one and it was stupid at this moment to you know, write an article how the old context API work so I decided okay let's wait uh, maybe um, React Redux guys will, reply, will rewrite Redux to the new context API but they still didn't
2: or maybe Redux so, won't even be a thing you know there are some talks about context <laughs> API or sort of replacing Redux that's what I heard so yeah, we're kind of waiting and trying to understand what what will be up.
1: I got you. Yeah, the context API and Redux conversation is a topic for another podcast, but Yeah. Um, so this article is really really fascinating with the kind of wide adoption that React has. There's a large percentage of that population that probably doesn't really think about like rendering performance when looking at racks, So I think this is uh, kind of a very needed piece of content. So I like just kind of to start a little bit and talk about like, so what is the virtual DOM um, for those who might not know?
3: Okay. Uh, Let me explain it. Uh, You see how the page is rendered uh, rendered in the browser. Well, basically, in uh, we have usual DOM. It's a collection of HTML nodes that can be nested in each other, and they have some API that you can use to add elements to it or to remove them. In the time of jQuery, if you want to add something to DOM or to remove it or to modify it in some way, you just use this API. API. you find the element on the page using selectors or something like that then you just remove or add it. Uh, it's okay, but uh, to work with DOM in browser, you need to uh, some way to remember your current state, what is rendered, what is not rendered, or if you have some, uh, I don't know, selects, uh, if they're opened or not. And it's a quite tedious task because you need to listen to and look at the state of a lot of elements. And here comes React. Uh, the basic idea of React is that you need to think about all these things. You just need to write a description of the state of the page, what you want to see as a bunch of functions, then it will be rendered. In terms of JavaScript, it's just a simple object. So it's an object that describes your page. So it says here should be do, uh, div, if this classes then it have children with some other elements, etc., etc. So it's just a big object. And then you want to change something on your page. You just run function that generates your to DOM again, and it creates new object. Then red uh, compares two objects and just uh, apply the difference between them automatically to your actual actual DOM. Uh, this way, we can uh, prevent uh, thinking about a lot of unnecessary things and just update the page, part of page that needs to be updated and leave all other things and enact. This way, it's a lot easier to work with the interface and a lot easier to make changes. Awesome,
1: awesome. So one of the things that I really love about this article is that you kind of go, you go through like a good progression between like, here's the JSX that you would write in React, and then here's kind of what the transpiled function or here's what it like the JSX turns into in the regular JavaScript. And then you kind of like further down the article, you actually show what the virtual dom representation of that is and i think that's a really helpful thing especially when we start thinking about what the process for reconciliation is of the virtual dom which is react's way of diffing these virtual dom objects so yeah let's just talk about that in react when you write some jsx to represent an element it's turned into this react create element call and that ultimately turns into a virtual DOM node. So, how does React kind of map changes to those things when it's rendering?
3: Okay, let's talk about changes. Well, basically, as Justin just said, uh, the process uh, look like that. You now, basically, you just start from writing JSX code. It's that kind of looks like uh, HTML, but not exact. But browser did not understand JSX, so for browser to understand it, Babel or other compiler, uh, transpiler tool transform these JSX calls to plain JavaScript. It usually a function called react. Uh, element with some params. So uh, first of all, react call this function with these params, and it gets object as a result of this function call. And this object is basically virtual dom. And this virtual dom have some uh, standard uh, case. Keys that uh, it then using to compare different virtual doms. Basically, every virtual dom uh, fragment have the key called type uh, that it describes what element should be rendered. So basically, type can be string, div, or span, or header, or something else. And first thing that React will compare when it Will try to decide to replace this element or not. If this type changed, basically, if type was div and it will become span or if it will become something else, React will try to just replace all this uh, HTML node and all the children and it will not even try to do something about it. So, first thing is to type compulsion. Then uh, if the time is the same, then uh, the next compulsion will start. First of all, it will uh, look at the props k of this object and see if uh, some of these elements will change. If the type is a string and if the type of element is DOM element like d for span, then React knows how to react to props change. It will just try to replace old props with the new props without recreating element. It will just leave it in place. But if the element type is not a string, but a React component like, I don't know, your dropdown or your form component, then React will try to do some different things. It will first try to compare types and if the time is the function and the function is the same, it will still try to run this function. It will still run its render method or if it's function, it will uh, try to run this function and get result, And then the result will be new uh, React create component calls that will return some new object and React will try to compile them to. So basically, it, if the type is changed, then all the part of the tree will change. If the type is the same and uh, it's a the string, then React will try to update it. And if the type is the function or class, then React will try to re render it anyway. I got you. So
1: just to recap, When you're rendering an element, you write some JSX and then like whatever that first thing in the JSX is. So if it's like div or it's like a component, that's going to map over to what the type property is for the virtual DOM object. And then your props will be passed in to a props object. And all of that is compared. When does the actual comparison happen? This is something that I'm not exactly sure of. Is it like...
3: Okay, yeah, it happens this way. So basically, you have React and create component calls, and then you create components They are not called. The thing that will call them is a React DOM render function. So basically, then you run React DOM dot render. It will run the first render and will create the page. But if you run React DOM render again, with the same HTML node, but with uh, some other elements at params, then it will create... First create new virtual DOM and then try to compare it to the previous virtual DOM. It's the first example, then uh, comparison happens. But in this case it only works for cows for random render. But we can also change our props and states in other ways. One of the ways how we can change it is we can change a component state. So basically, if you have components and some of these components have state and you change state, React you run React DOM render on this component render method and its children, but in ways to change it.
4: Yes, this is interesting because, first of all, it's a common misconception to think that React render is like initialize something and every time you would call it, it would like start all over. And this is it's not a thing, right? It it will like react.render, react DOM dot render will generate a new virtual DOM and compared to the previous one, right?
3: If you use the same uh, DOM node to render it, then yes. So basically it's the same mount point, then it will remember that it already mounted something to it and it will try to update it, not uh, re-render from the start.
4: Yeah, but so it's, it's uh, yeah, it's both React DOM.render and set state. These are the two only things that, that trigger state, or is there any more?
3: Well, actually, there is still a context API, but I think it's uh, if you start to talk about it, you'll never finish. <laughs> but in normal uh, app development, you almost never use context yourself, and you usually use uh, the, the first render from React DOM render or uh, state changes.
4: Mm-hmm. Yes, so one other interesting aspect of this conversation, you talked uh, before about uh, the imperative way of doing it, the way we did before, uh, listeners and changing inner HTMLs of nodes and things like that. And it's much simpler to just say what you want and let the virtual DOM do the, do the updates but a question that may arise is, like, is there any case, is there any real-world case where it does not work well? Like, is there, like, what are the trade-offs? What what would be the situations where we would not choose to use a virtual DOM algorithm? Have you ever encountered one?
3: Uh, well, you see... It's a good question. Let me start from uh, some ground. So basically, if you are working with the single page applications and you have a lot of changes in the browser, then I think that using virtual DOM and uh, some of its uh, implementations like uh, React Render or something in view. It's probably simplest and most easiest way. But there is a lot of case in the real world. Then you just need to have some uh, small little changes to the uh, page that should be rendered on the server site, and and you didn't want to add a lot of uh, JavaScript to your bundle. For example, a lot of sites need to have a server site render to work with search engines. For example, if you're creating a e-commerce uh, site or some landings, you probably want your to for, uh, search engines to index you and they probably did not have that much interactive stuff happened on the page it would not be the best idea to bundle all of the reacts to your bundle and uh, to add a lot of logic that works with react to just i don't know show pop up or to add something to the card it can be easier to just do it all the way
1: i get you yeah that makes a lot of sense because like if it's pretty basic, then you don't have to do a whole lot of like manual updates, like adding and removing <laughs> nodes.
3: Uh, yes, exactly. Because uh, to, uh, for React to uh, be able to use Virtual DOM, it needs to understand the current state and new state and basically all the page uh, structure. So to make it work, you need to write all or most of the page in React, and then uh, bundle all these components to your bundle, so React can load them and make comparison, and then decide that it should uh, show this white box or pop up. And I think it did not have a lot of sense to do it. <laughs>
4: yeah yeah this is yeah this is a good answer. I've heard I never worked with uh, these types of projects, but I also heard that when we have these projects that are very like real time based with web sockets, connections, and needing to update uh, hundreds of elements in real time on a screen on a screen that sometimes the the virtual Dom is like too slow. for for the updates and then you cannot escape the manual. We often say you need to be very precise about like what you're going to update with that that thing, like this big, I don't know, financial uh, data dashboards in real time. I've never worked in a project like that, but yeah, I've heard some people saying that they had a lot of uh, performance issues, but I'm pretty sure that 99.99% of the applications actually will perform better with a virtual DOM than after like a bunch of listeners and inner HTML here and there. Things get very complicated like pretty soon. So yeah.
3: You see the fun thing is that it should be in the second part of our part article and it was in my talk because the reason that i start to dive in the react and render it's because we have the project there we have a big table that we wanted to update in more or less real time and our initial implementation of react components was not uh, fast enough so we uh, start to duck here to dig in the um, Dome, uh, comparison algorithms, or to try and uh, shoot component updates or components and things like that. And uh, the point is that, uh, yes, if you uh, render all your page all the time, for example, if you have, I don't know, one connect at the top of your application and just send all your data inside of it, and then you Try to, I don't know, enter somebody something in input on the page. Then for each entered symbol, you need to re-calculate uh, all of the virtual DOM, and it would be very slow. So the good practices here is to structure your state in the way that you can update it without. Uh, affecting your uh, data structures or your neighbor an object and things like that and have a lot of connect on the low level near the element that is updated basically you need to wrap all your table lines or even inputs in uh, separate connects and just supply them with the data they needed and this data should be a simple strings or no- and numbers and you should avoid object and things like that. This way, it will still be fast.
1: So that's just to reduce the amount of state changes so that you're reducing the amount of times that render actually happens, right?
3: Yes, the closer connect or a state change is to the components. The smaller part of the page should be uh, re-rendered. So the smaller part of the virtual DOM should be generated and compared, and it will become faster. So. It-
0: Once again, for a 30 day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash dev and enter dev in the how did you hear about us section.
1: Right. That brings up a, another good point of reading through the article. So we talked earlier about how type was kind of the first thing that was checked when a virtual DOM node is being rendered out. So if you're rendering like a div or a span or something that's like a native element, then it'll check the, the type and type will be a string, so you have like a div, that's a string. And then on the next render, if it's like also a div, then those are like equal. So it uses like equal, equal, equals, like strict equal comparison to like compare these types. So two divs would be equal. Obviously a span and a div would be different. So it would just like throw out that element and kind of re-render it. But what was really interesting is, so for like class, components, they're not always equivalent, even though they're the same thing, because um, they could be different instances. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? That means that you're going to, is it always going to re-render for those components? And what can you do to control the render life cycles for those who might not be aware?
3: Yes, of course. Uh, well, basically we need to talk about two things in this example. First of all, in my article I have example then you are using high order components high order components is a great pattern then you take your component and wrap it in the function and you have a new component as results that have some enhancements it's uh, cool it's used all the time it's used inside pretty much every library that you can find and it's hard to develop product application without it but then you're creating a new high order component. Uh, you need to remember that uh, the function that creates higher order components from other components uh, is always create new function that uh, will be called. So basically, if you wrap, uh, I don't know, your button with some connect, then the result of this connect will be a new function. And this new function, uh, and after each uh, connect call, this function will be new and it will not be equal to the previous one. So, if you for some uh, for some uh, reason create your components inside the render method, then they will be a new instance of this components each time, and then React will try to compare virtual doms. It will think about these components as different components and will just disregard all these three parts and will re-render it from the start. So, you. To avoid it, you should uh, only create other components outside of the render calls, so they will be just created once and just used. It's uh, pretty simple to fix it, and it will save you a lot of unmounting and mounting the nodes again. It's the first problem. But as Justin said, if type of the component in Virtual DOM is function of class, it will be called each time, even if the uh, type is still function. It will not replace the uh, DOM nodes, and it will not call for a page uh, repainting and removing and adding nodes. But we, the virtual DOM, a part of this page, will still be recalculated. So it will still call render and still uh, return some functions from this render and some j 6 components that will be still be called and compared. And it's not always a good thing and if you know that some part of your application will need change or you not change if something in the top level component changed will affect it then you can just prevent this part of the tree and this component to render you can use a should component update function for it uh, how it works uh should component uh, update is a method of the class uh, Based React components. So if uh, this function uh, received uh, new uh, props and states, and you can compare them, if old props and state, and you, you can decide yourself should this component be rendered unchanged. If you return false in this method, it will not be rendered. It you can prevent a lot of, all DOM recalculations and updates. we say.
1: Cool. Yeah, that's that's a really really beneficial <laughs> tool to just controlling your rendering. And part of your article, you also showed how to use the React DevTools to kind of show when there were updates to rendering cycles. So um, we'll include the actual link to the article, of course, in the show notes. And I definitely recommend people go kind of like read through it and check out that uh, particular function because it's it's really beneficial to kind of see like how things are actually rendering. Because sometimes... Uh, things are rendering more than you would expect.
4: <laughs> yeah, this is a very interesting topic to me because we have things that apparently help us in principle when we are uh, creating an application and we need performance. And so, like, oh, we use a pure component, which is a component that already has a should component update. Um, implemented for you with some basic comparison functions and things like that. But, uh, in the end, this is a a message I, I try to, to carry around. Like we need to open the, the performance tools. We need to open dev tools and understand what is, uh, what, what is happening? Like, is it, is it really a bottleneck that I think it is and things like that. Sometimes we are optimizing our application. So, um, an interesting case. It was I don't know, like some months ago, there was like a really big Twitter, one of those Twitter things of people saying you should not create functions on render, right? So people are using anonymous uh, arrow functions on on render, as callbacks. So these functions will be created every time render gets called. So you should create a method function and just pass this method function to to the to to the props. But it's not not every time this is going to result in, a, in better performance because sometimes you're not going to call that render function a lot. Sometimes you won't call the render function that particular component in most of the page views. You are allocating that function on page load for every page view. So we need to use those perf tools to understand like which components are our bottlenecks and try to focus on them and use these techniques that that you talk about in your your post. Yeah, it's like performance comes, uh, performance work should always come with profile work, profiler work, right?
3: Uh, Yes, exactly. It's uh, pretty much that I was always trying to say. Don't uh, think about optimization before the things slow down. Uh, just uh, develop in the way it, that makes sense for you. If something uh, starts uh, working slow, do not try to optimize everything. Profile things, understand what is the bottleneck, and fix it first. After that, profile it again, and if it's still slow, then look at the next bottleneck, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, it's usually did not uh, uh, that uh, good idea and not that useful to fix every possible place that have some slowdown. Because, for example, if you, uh, as I said before, have a lot of uh, connected components that update their states and did not update uh, and have uh, should component of them, uh, updating them, or uh, the uh, pure components, then you could, uh, can save some time in optimizing the children. So basically, if your table row is a pure component, and it will only render, then its props will change, then you don't really need to optimize functions inside of it, because it will be only count if this row data changes, and it will only affect one function. So you can save some time on it, things like
1: that. Yeah, cool. So not to veer the conversation off too much, but we've been talking about like render performance and Lucas had mentioned the pure component and you know, not uh, not creating functions render and rendering things like that. You ha- actually have a big quote in the articles. Like if you're mindful of creating objects, arrays, and functions outside of a render definition and make sure they don't change between calls and you know, you're, you're safe from like a rendering performance perspective. This like brings up a really big question for me. So there's a really common pattern these days in the React world that I'm seeing, which is um, function as a child component where you basically you have a component and then the child of that component is just a function and the kind of the parent component is basically just calling that. So that is essentially creating a function in a render function. And I'm just curious about that pattern. Will that re-render every time? Is that because of its render performance? Is it kind of an anti-pattern or kind of what are your thoughts on maybe that pattern and like optimizing and things like that?
3: It will re-render each time if some of its parents or this component itself changed. And then yes, it will try to change its children. It's not always anti-pattern because if you did not uh, change the parents that much or you changed the children by connecting them to store without them taking uh, data from their parents, then it can be okay because if you did not call this uh, update too often, well, it's not that much of a problem. But you need to remember about it all the time and you need to profile all the time to be sure that you didn't change something in the upper part of the application because you can change a lot of things that you probably didn't want to change this way, and to cover a lot of renders.
1: Yep, I think that's a good point. Always always profile.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yes, my only issue with the, the render props pattern is not a performance issue. It's more uh, architecture issue. A lot of the times we want uh, something to be um, uh, inject it like we use most of those to inject some functionality right in our application something like i'm listening to some window size change or i want to have some access to i don't know apollo client or things like that to a function sometimes we want to access those outside the render function sometimes we want to access those on a lifecycle like on componented mouth. The higher order component makes it simple, makes it easier to just add a prop to a component. And then it's easy to access it on the lifecycle methods. That that's probably like the only reason I still have a bunch of I'm still creating a bunch of higher order components here and there, because sometimes I want to call things on the life cycles and I don't want like to put create a component to to have it on a render function and then pass it to the props to to the component i needed. that's my only complaint with render props personally
3: well it's worked most of the time and if you can do well of course do it uh, the only case that it's not really working is, is if you have not one child component but a few child components that need to use these props so if you have a future child and each of them wanted it for some reason, this way to receive them from function will make it easier.
4: Cool. Yes, you, you mean like composing consumers, right? Composing a bunch of render props.
3: Not exactly. Well, you see, what we are talking about is then component return function as a child, a children. Element and this function call will receive some uh, properties from its parent, for example, hate, with, or something else. Mm-hmm. And now we need to send this hate, with, or something else to uh, some of its child. If it's just one child, well, it's easy, you can just uh, send them as props to this child. But uh, there is some examples when you have big and uh, big components that itself is composed from few components, and each of them needs to receive just part of these props. So instead of wrapping each of these components in high-order components, it's easier to just render them as function and just manually assign the values to each of them.
4: Yep, I agree. Yeah, that's a good use case.
1: Yeah, there are some interesting cases with that pattern where things That I've seen where you have like a, a lot of those that are chained together, so like it's comes this kind of funny tree of like function, 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 function. And it's like there are some like higher order components that will help you compose those functions, child yeah. components into kind of one and like join the props and everything. But it's it's kind of interesting to, <laughs> to look at some of that code
4: sometimes, so yeah, it's like callback hell all over again, <laughs> <laughs> it can be. yeah. We keep putting put ourselves in the same traps, <laughs> but yeah, everything is always a trade-off, right? Like it, it brings a lot of benefits, but you, you need to seed somewhere. And I believe that Render Props seeded on the uh, usage in lifecycle components and compose composition, but. Yeah. Every time I, I I can use it, I use it instead of the higher-order component because if we are, if we start to, to to look at the internals and looking at the the debuggers and stuff, even that the tree after the tree is built, it looks cleaner with render props. I yeah, I like it even with the drawbacks.
3: Yeah, I sure. totally
4: agree too.
1: So, hey, I have I have one more question. There's one more thing that I really wanted to talk about um, because I think it's kind of an interesting thing. So you spent some time talking about kind of like lists of like children and how if you like, if one of the, the children are removed from that list, that array, then it ends up like re-rendering kind of all the children because it's like trying to compare their positions. And you mentioned key as one way to deal with that. Um, and you also mentioned another uh, another alternative of using a, a Boolean flag to deal with it. So I'll, I want to talk about keys for a second. So pretty much every time I see someone use a key, they're always using like an index of this array that they're iterating over, which is kind of seems like it defeats the purpose of using the key. So I really want to hear your thoughts on that.
3: You're absolutely right. Using the index is pretty much defeats all the purpose of it. I think that they just use it because uh, uh, else React will post these nasty messages to your console saying that just add indexes and don't do it. But the uh, basic idea of keys is that uh, then you change the order of the elements in your array. React should know which elements in array to compare with each elements in the new array, and it's use the keys to compare them. So if you're uh, using indexes uh, indexes instead of keys, then it will just compare wrong elements and it will find out that they're different and you'll we'll just uh, redraw all of them and use all the benefits of using keys.
1: Great. That's something that I uh, I, I kind of see continually and I try to bring up and pull requests and things when I see it. But it is it's like a, a smaller known thing, but you're you're absolutely right. Most people are just like, I want this this keys error to go away. So I'm just gonna like find something I can shove in here without kind of understanding like what it's doing. So to some extent, you know, it's good to know if your tool requires you to do something it is good to know why it's requiring you to do something. Absolutely. Cool. So those were my big questions. Uh, does anybody have anything else before we move on to pics?
4: Yeah, just one last question. And this is a, a question towards a common uh, beginner uh, struggle too. Is that, so the person is starting to, to program and starts to be a web developer and you say like, okay, you're learning React. This is a good tool. This is the tool that, people are using now and then the person is learning how to build an app with react then we start like throwing articles on them saying like oh here is how things work under the hood and a lot of times i think that when people are still trying to understand like how to use react and then when they they, they also learn like how he react works sometimes it's like a cognitive overload on the beginners right so do you have any experience with that? Like when should we dive in inside React? When, how can we prevent this cognitive overload of now I'm trying to build my application and at the same time I need to understand all this virtual DOM stuff that React says that it handles for me for free and now I need to to, to, to learn about those things. Like what, what would be your advice for people starting out?
2: If I might, before Alex say continues, uh But this is a rather philosophical question, like how beginner should you be before you start learning React, right?
4: Yes. yes.
2: And if you are already learning React, then like in my opinion, ideally, you should be very well aware of JavaScript at that moment, right? So jumping into React without uh, knowing a thing or two about JavaScript, this is, I think, a common mistake that a lot of people are doing nowadays, trying to just catch up to something shiny. then I think if you already had a chance to play with uh, things like at least I think anyone learning React should try to update elements in the DOM manually, you know, just before trying React. And then with that knowledge, I think understanding the internals would be much easier. But yeah, this was just my two cents. Alexey, what do you think?
3: Uh, Okay, there is two common scenarios. Uh, first of all, it's complete beginners in JavaScript and front-end development and showing them article like mine and uh, wanting them to understand what is uh, these different algorithms, things like that will not be really useful and it will probably lead to a cognitive reward. So for them, the first thing that they should do is uh, to become familiar with uh, basic concept in J6 and just try to do things. And uh, for some time they'll be okay and you'll be able to build some application and see that stuff uh, working and be happy about it and do some uh, have some results and useful application. But at some point of time it will start to show problems and you'll become slow and unresponsive. And it's probably a good moment for them to dive in the Articles that describe the inner inner workings of it and then understand why this uh, slowdown happens. It's one thing, but there is other case. Then uh, somebody who already knows JavaScript and works with jQuery and DOM and different things was starting to learn React. And he sees a lot of new and strange concepts like JSX and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. For them, it can be a good idea to start with articles like this one uh, to understand how these concepts maps to the things in JavaScript they already know. And maybe it will be easier for them to learn this uh, this way.
4: Yeah, yeah. I find both both answers very interesting. One thing that I always try to do, and I always try to do like this in life, not always uh, we can do it, but when we can, it's really good. Whenever you are going to hire some someone to do something or use a tool to do something or choose a framework or buy a product, uh, always try at least for a little bit to do to do the work itself without it. Because that's what you're saying. Like if you try to build an application without react and then when react is introduced to you, like, you're only going to see the benefits that they're bringing, or at least the trade-offs, the the choices that that are being made. So one thing that happens a lot inside the React world itself is the same thing. People that do not uh, write an application with React and start uh, writing with Redux right away, it's the same thing. Like You cannot understand well the benefits of Redux without doing a bunch of React applications and seeing the, the moments where that thing breaks. So this, this input is interesting. So whenever we have a chance to, to, to start with the, the basic building blocks and then building up, yeah, that makes sense.
0: Awesome. Well, if that's all we have, let's move on to picks. Is your job search stuck? Maybe you're not getting any interviews with employers, or maybe you are, but no job offers. Or you may be new and not even know where to start. This is Charles Maxwood, and I'm releasing a new course and ebook on how to find a job as a software developer. The course walks you through the process of finding the types of companies you want to work for, getting their attention, and putting your best foot forward as the candidate they want. I've coached dozens of developers in looking for jobs and have been able to help several people find jobs within two weeks to two months. So whether you're new to development, can't find a great job that fits what you want, or looking for remote work from an area without a strong tech community, I can help. Go to getacoderjob.com and sign up today. So, Lucas, would you like to kick us off? Do you
1: have
4: any picks this week? Oh, my God. I was caught by surprise here. (laughs) So, my first pick is try to check if the room you're going to record anything has a really weird echo or not. So, be aware of the echo. It seems like I'm talking from a cave. So... Yeah, check our stuff first. I I don't have any picks this week. This would be my only one.
1: All right, cool. <laughs> uh, Andy, do you want to go? Do you have a pick? Anything you'd like to recommend the listeners? Books or anything?
2: Thanks for sharing. Well, well, me personally, uh, like uh, this week, I've been uh, reading a lot about uh, the Go programming language. I don't know how it's going to be uh, interesting for people who are doing front end, but uh, why not? Maybe, you know, we're full stack here. Uh, we have listeners uh, interested in different languages. Um, definitely, I'm enjoying a lot uh, looking at Go and just playing with its concepts and listening to, um, listening to Rob Pike's talks. So probably, yes, discovering uh, the whole community and the awesome documentation behind the language and all the conferences about it. It's a big pleasure and a very nice surprise, you know, to have, like, something that is mapped out so well when you're just beginning uh, discovering something new. I would think that's a very good example of like introducing a concept, what what what? Go's team uh, does to attract beginners.
1: Awesome, awesome. So uh, Alexey, do you have anything?
3: There is a really cool book called Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud and it's not about comics but uh, in a lot of one it's big part about the life itself and what's the fun thing is it's uh, all answers the Lucas questions pretty well uh, it's half a section that talks about the education and how we try to teach people different things and how people actually teach uh, learning basically we are usually trying to teach uh, people new things starting from a big concept about things like composition and uh, in the case of comics we start with story and composition and then we are going to the smaller things like um, pages and um, pictures and them etc etc but then people try to learn something they did not want to spend uh, a lot of time uh, on preparation work uh, they want to just uh, start drawing and most of the people who Really, uh, draw comics. You start by drawing pictures, and then after that, going to draw the pages, and after that, to the books, etc., etc. So coming to Lucas, uh, example, uh, I think that uh, to for people who are learning something, they just need to get their hands on it and start trying it. And uh, we did not need to. Teach them before how um, compilers work and how browser works and how things works under hood and some uh, core programming concepts. Just let them play with the things and have some results. So, if you want to understand comics better and learn things better, well, the book Understanding Comics but Scott McLeod is a good place to start.
1: Awesome! Awesome! So for my pick, I've been learning Elixir uh, recently, uh, and it's been pretty fun. So there's a, a Udemy course um, that was on sale. It might not be on sale by the time this podcast goes out, but uh, it's it's been a great resource um, for me. It's the Complete Elixir and Phoenix Bootcamp, if you're interested. But Elixir is a pretty fun functional programming language. So if that's your kind of thing, then definitely check it out. Cool, and with that, I think that's everything. So uh, thanks for being on and thanks for talking to us about uh, the virtual DOM and rendering performance.
2: Thank you, Lucas, thank you, Justin. Thank you for having us. Uh, It was a pleasure talking to you guys. Cool, all right. Thanks, everybody. That's all we got.
3: Thank you. Bye-bye.
0: Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN.